Welcome to the Glindbourne Podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and today I'll be looking at the themes and music for Benjamin Britten's Billy Budd, which is being performed as part of the 2013 Glindbourne Festival to celebrate the centenary of Britten's birth. The world of Billy Budd is a dangerous one, a sailing ship in a time of war where many men are thrown together and where feelings can run high, as the music writer Gavin Plumley explains. The ship in Billy Budd, the HMS Indomitable, is, is like a sort of laboratory. All human life, OK, all male human life in this particular case, but all human life is there. And um, in the intense claustrophobia of this setting particularly emphasised in the kind of whalebone ship of a Glyndebourne production, these these figures kind of jar against each other. Some some of them are some of those relationships are very positive, and some are very hostile and often quite violent. Unusually for an opera, but correctly from an historical point of view, the cast for Billy Budd is all male. Gavin Plumley, the all male cast in Billy Budd certainly lends the score and the drama this heft, this real sort of weight and a sense of authority just because of the sheer noise that the voice can make and the fact that, although it is just men, that the forces are pretty much the same as in any you know large-scale opera, but they're all centred in that area of, of the voice. And it really it has this kind of juggernaut feel at times. The story of Billy Budd is set during the years of the French Revolutionary Wars, specifically 1797. And Billy is a young sailor working on a merchant ship called Rights of Man, a reference to the book published in 1791 by Thomas Paine, where he argued that revolution was justified where the authorities failed the people. In Act One of the opera, Billy is press-ganged into service aboard the Royal Naval ship HMS Indomitable, which is captained by Edward Fairfax Vere. Sir Thomas Allen, who has sung the role of Billy Budd many times, introduces us to the character of Budd. Billy Budd is a character invented by Herman Melville in a relatively short novel, uh, but a very interesting novel that was inspired by a lot of the naval history that was going on at the time, um, particularly the, uh, the unrest within the British Navy um, around the various mutinies, Spithead and the Nore. And, of course, the press gang was a very prominent aspect of naval history at that time, so you'd be idly having a, a glass of shandy in uh, some uh, quayside pub when in would uh, storm a group of ruffians, and the next thing you knew, you were, you were in the bowels of a ship being pressed into um, His Majesty's Navy. It was rough and tough, and Billy Budd was just such a case. He was a Bristolian, and he wasn't a saint, although I think he's often regarded in that way for some reason. I think he probably had a girl in every port. I'd like to think of him that way. But unlike so many of the others who were taken from their homes and, and stuffed aboard... Uh, naval ships for the requirement of staffing the, the Royal Navy, Billy Budd accepted the job and took on the job with great relish, and that singled him out. It singled him out because he did it with relish, and 
in, in a kind of open-eyedness to everything that was put in front of him. And he, he worked willingly for the Royal Navy as opposed to grudgingly, which so many of the others did, and as a result attracted a lot of attention with, uh, from his uh, shipmates, most of them showing him great admiration. As Thomas Allen says, Britain's opera to a libretto by E.M. Forster and Eric Crozier was based on a novella by the American writer Herman Melville. Ellie Steddle is writing a PhD thesis on 19th century transatlantic sea literature at the University of Cambridge. Billy Bug comes at the end of Melville's career and at the end of his life, and I think it's a work in which he poured all his interests, all his skill. It was a work that he didn't necessarily know would be read by anybody. It wasn't published in his lifetime. At the same time, he took a great deal of care with its composition. He worked over and over it. He expanded it to a great degree. And I think that the themes that interested him throughout his life are given brilliant expression in this text. When he was still writing Moby Dick, he wrote, in this world of lies, truth is forced to flee like a scared white doe in the woodlands, and only by cunning glimpses will she reveal herself. And I think that interest in truth, whether it's available, whether it can be caught, whether it can be glimpsed, preoccupied Melville throughout his life. And in Billy Budd, he was exploring that, that fugitive nature of truth with all the skill and experience of a long life and a very long writing career. As Ellie Steddle explains, the very exact date of 1797 in both Melville and Britain's works is crucial here. What's important about the year 1797 is that it was a critical time for the, the British Navy. The threat from the French was very real and... The, the British Navy relied on impressment, which was the forced recruitment of seamen in order to, to keep up its numbers and to be this huge sort of fighting force. But it meant that many of the sailors who were in the Navy didn't want to be there. And the levels of discipline were very stringent because of this. And the hierarchy of the ship was very fixed anyway. And of course, it's because of this particular military setting that in Billy Budd, Veer is forced to make his verdict about Billy actually at sea. He doesn't have recourse to a, to a jury ashore. A, a Britain's opera begins with a prologue, with Captain Veer alone on stage many years after these events have taken place. I am an old man, he sings, who has experienced much. I have been a man of action and have fought for my king and country at sea.
opera is framed within Captain Veer's memory. He introduces the story in the prologue and sort of recaps on the story in some sense in his epilogue. So it's as if the ship, which sort of emerges out of the mists of time, is like his cerebral cortex. It's like everything, all these figures, all these memories, all these violences, all these hostilities are contained within his memories and they kind of duke it out within his thoughts. And of course, because we are witnesses to this story, we are the people being told this story in the prologue and the epilogue, we are sort of aligned with Veer. And um, it's as if the ship in, in the opera is our own mind, is our own world, and, and, and the proscenium becomes like a mirror. And we experience things very directly in the opera. It is a very pugnacious piece of theatre which reaches right out to us and we ourselves are put into that situation we we think about the decisions we think about the powers that struggle within the opera and it's very real I think in impressment, which was a, a factual practice Malvel also saw the potential uh, for a metaphor for the condition of all people in all societies a sense of being not free of being trammelled. At one point in the text, Veer compares himself and his officers to impressed men who are forced to, to fight, uh, he says, against their conscience, against their will. And in a way, Veer too is forced to act against his will. Benjamin Britten was someone who lived with uncertainty and ambiguity, and he knew how to convey difficult intellectual concepts in music. In Billy Budd, he grapples with injustice and cruelty and the failure of the good man to act. Gavin Plumley finds every bit of that struggle clearly written into the music. Musically, Veer's indecision and the sort of polarities of the, of the piece are, are presented really concisely by Britain. The prologue begins with this rocking motif, which introduces actually a tonal kind of dialectic within the work rocking between B minor and B flat major. These two keys, if anyone plays the piano, they'll know that they're physically neighbours on the, on the piano, one rooted on a black note and one rooted on a white note. But in terms of their structure, the notes that are encompassed by those, those two tonalities, they're, they're very different. They have very few notes in common. And so they sort of represent within the, the work that the forces of good and evil, um, if we can call them that, there's this sense that there's no root in the piece, or rather there are two possible roots in the piece. Roots both in the sense of veins permeating the earth and a journey through the musical text. In some ways, the story seems like a simple opposition between good, Billy himself, and evil, the master-at-arms, John Claggett. But Billy is a foundling, so he's an outsider, and he has a debilitating stammer. He also has a glamour about him, and you can see that Thomas Allen clearly relishes the role. He was charismatic. 
there was just something that glowed uh, from within him, uh, and it attracted people and drew attention to him from the officers and from the captain himself, who got to hear about him. He got promotion quite quickly. But, of course, there was another element on the ship as well that didn't like what he represented, and that element was Claggett, um, uh, the master-at-arms, the policeman on the ship, and uh, he determined to bring him down, and that's the that was the... The, the other side of the seesaw in the story, if you like, and, and brought, brought, brought about the demise of Bod. Claggett takes against Billy. He orders another sailor to annoy Billy and bring out his temper. Then he takes it further and places gold among Billy's belongings, French gold, which can only mean that Billy is a traitor and a mutineer. And why does Claggett do all this? Well, we really don't know, and neither does he. But Britain gives him a credo, like that of Iago in Verdi's Otello, where he tells us directly that he wants to bring Billy down. Handsomely done, my lad. Handsome indeed. Britain worked with the Enforcer on this opera, and I think both figures brought um, a certain personal clout to the story, namely bringing out its sort of homoerotic or homosexual subtext. Um, I mean, when Claggett talks about Bud, he says, you know, beauty, handsomeness, goodness coming to trial. It's it's absolutely evident that there is a, there is a very base physical attraction, and even Veer is clearly beguiled by Billy's beauty, physical and, and mental, as it were. But I, I think the real crux of the matter is, is the sort of destructive nature of love. Um, and again, Britain's quite controversial in showing that, because, of course, you'd think he'd want to show homosexual relationships in a positive light, and he's there showing that they are as twisted and can be as complicated as heterosexual relationships. And I'm reminded whenever I see Billy Budd, of that incredible Oscar Wilde line when he says, you know, yet each man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard, some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word, the coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. There's a sort of levelling quality about that, and that's where I think Billy Budd is not about being gay or it's not about Britain's concerns, but it's sort of about the base feral nature of every man. And Billy is not perfect either. Captain Veer doesn't believe Claggett's accusation, but when he questions Billy, anger and distress make Billy unable to reply. And, as Thomas Allen explains, disaster is the result. He had a stammer. He was afflicted at times of stress by a stammer. And um, when he was excited, uh, as when he was being interviewed and uh, to explain who he was and where he came from and, 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 and how he felt about the situation. He became overexcited and people immediately uh, were witness to this fault that he had in him, this, this, this little bit of a weakness. Sadly, the weakness comes across him when he's also accused later in the story by Claggett of taking French gold and of being a traitor. The stammer afflicts him and he can't answer to the charges. <coughs> 
captain, Captain Veer, urges him to answer to the charges. Please, Bard, answer to the charges. He can't, he can't, he can't. And finally he responds to the accusations by Claggett by hitting him very hard on the head with his fist and kills him outright. And, of course, Veer sees that he has no other option but to call a drumhead court, uh, as a result of which Bud is condemned, although he, he did entirely the right thing at that particular moment against this great force of evil that was in front of him. The years leading up to the premiere of Billy Bud in 1951 had been difficult for Britain. He and his partner, the tanner Peter Pears, as conscientious objectors, had left Britain for America at the outbreak of the Second World War. They returned in 1942, and in 1945, Britain achieved a huge success with his first major opera, Peter Grimes. Only a month later, Britain travelled to Germany with Yehudi Menuhin to give concerts for survivors of the concentration camps. Britain's lifelong pacifism was intensified by what he saw there, and he later told Piers that all his music afterwards was coloured by that experience. Billy Budd fits into this picture. It is set during a time of war, and it is about the destruction of an innocent man. The subject matter may be challenging, but Gavin Plumley explains the rich quality of Britain's music. There's a huge range of styles and textures and forms at work within Billy Budd. I mean, some people from the outside might think, well, there are only male voices in Billy Budd, you know, given its setting. But what Britain achieves with that, that sort of restriction, if you can view it as such, is, is absolutely incredible. So we have these a cappella choruses, that sort of sea shanties late at night, and then these absolutely enormous sort of militaristic... Um, spectaculars. The way that Britain moves between these textures and these ensembles and these various forms is almost cinematographic. It has this kind of ebb and flow. And there's the most incredible moment when, for the first time, we go below decks in the ship, and the sailors' shanty can be heard quite distantly, and we move physically and orally down the ship, down towards the water, as it were, and suddenly this this shanty becomes absolutely enormous. It's a, it's a really incredible oral moment, because it's like we're being taken into the bowels of the ship.
Billy has killed Claggett. Captain Veer has no choice. Billy is cast into chains, the derbies, as the sailors call it, and he will be hanged from the yardarm in the morning. Thomas Allen takes up the story. I mentioned this, this scene, Billy in the Derbies, which has wonderful lyrical qualities to it as he contemplates his few hours of life that remain before he dies. It then goes on after a, the intervention of Danska with some biscuit for him and a, a, a mug of water. He then goes on to urge Danska to make sure that the, the crew do not mutiny on his behalf, that he does this, he's happy to do this for Captain Veer, it's what he deserves. He's going to a better place. And out of all of that comes this, and farewell to ye all rights a man, never your joys no more. And this has a, a most euphoric sort of ecstatic quality to it, where he goes into a, onto a completely different plane, I think. He's been down there in the dark with just a stray shaft of moonlight coming through to give him anything to go by. And then suddenly he illuminates the whole place with this outburst at the end. I'm strong and I'll stay strong. But Billy's death is not quite the end. In the epilogue, we again see Captain Veer looking back to these events of long ago. None of this is in Melville, where Veer is killed in action quite soon afterwards. But for Gavin Plumley, Britain and Forster's decision to add Veer's sad reflections on the past underlines the moral complexity of the story and the uncompromising brilliance of the opera. At the end of the opera, Captain Veer says that he, Billy, has saved me and blessed me and the love that passes understanding has come to me. The reference in E.M. Forster and Eric Crozier's text to St. Paul's letter to the Philippians sort of lends this pseudo-religious balm to Veer's words. It's almost like a sort of benediction at the end that everything is sort of soothed, that Billy, you know, saying starry Veer and, you know, and, and turning around and nigh forgiving him as he's sentenced to death has sort of made everything all right that the tensions in the opera have been sort of appeased i'm not sure i buy it and i i don't think we would have seen the opera or the opera would have been presented to us in veer's memories if if everything were that easy i think that like the the books that veer reads in his study at night this sort of reliance on a pat formula, okay, a religious formula in this case, but a pat formula is a falsehood. It's a trick of his mind, 
And I think he's as lost at the end, in fact, as he was at the beginning. Would I could have saved him. I could have saved him. He knew it. Even his shipmates knew it. But for all the injustice and pain in Billy Budd, Ellie Steddle feels that Melville never became disillusioned about human nature. Someone once said about Melville that he was a man with an endless love for the world. And I think despite the complexities and disappointments of his life, that love is apparent in, in Billy Budd. <laughs> 